Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. First responders and members of the military have physically and mentally demanding jobs. To tackle those jobs effectively, they need to be in shape physically and mentally. But most first responders have an erratic schedule that makes working out difficult, so many don't, and consequently suffer from injuries and poor health. My guest today is a former Navy SEAL on a mission to solve that problem. His name is Adam LaRue, and he's the founder of O2X, an organization dedicated to training tactical athletes. Adam walks us through the unique challenges soldiers and first responders have when it comes to physical fitness and explains his philosophy on training tactical athletes. We then discuss insights civilians can take away from how first responders train, including making time for working out on an erratic schedule, managing stress, and making recovery a priority. We ended a conversation discussing the other organization Adam founded called One Summit, which pairs children who have cancer with a Navy SEAL mentor who helps these kids gain greater resilience through rock climbing. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash O2X. That's O2X, not 02X, O2X. And you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into the topic. And Adam joins me now via clearcast.io. Adam LaRue, welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me on. So we uh, we got an interesting background. We're going to talk about these organizations you founded. But before we do, Tell us about your SEAL background. You're, you're, you were a Navy SEAL. Or how, how's that work? Are you always a Navy SEAL or like, do you leave the SEALs? What, what's the status on that? I've, I've, I've always, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm okay being a former, okay. a former Navy SEAL. Former Navy SEAL. All right. So like what led you to join the Navy SEALs? Uh, you know, a lot of it started with uh, my family and I, I'd be remiss if I, I didn't talk about that initially is, you know, my mother and father were, were both teachers. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. They grew up in Albany, New York, kind of grew up down the street from each other. Actually, my mom and dad met when my dad was, you know, nine years old and delivering newspapers to this little girl that that used to wait for him every morning to get the paper. And I believe it or not, that happened. And my grandfather worked for Nabisco, drove a truck for Nabisco, the cracker company, ended up in New Jersey. You know, they kind of went their their separate ways. My dad got uh, drafted. He went to college and university at Albany and got drafted, came back after Vietnam and married my mother in New Jersey. And I can tell you, you know, they were, my mom was a second grade teacher. My dad was a gym teacher for a while and a soccer coach and then went on to sales. And I can tell you by watching them, they just had a, they just had a, a culture in the household and raised us to, 
really kind of be anybody we want to be. I was fascinated. I was fascinated with the military. I mean, there was a time where I was always just looking at my dad's uniform in the closet and asking him questions about it. But really, the values that my family instilled in the household and and kind of brought and raised us up. I have an older sister and a younger brother. Those values, uh, when I stumbled across the SEAL teams at a, at a fairly young age, those values that the SEAL teams embodied and kind of what my family believed in and, and what I was raised on kind of merged pretty well. It's always a very, very goal-oriented person at a, at a young age. So, I mean, I remember walking into my guidance counselor in eighth grade and said, you know, I want to go to Naval Academy. Uh, I want to be a, a SEAL officer. And I think they were back then. They were like, "Ah, you know, pump your brakes. It's going to change. It's going to change quite a bit." But I, I was certainly focused focused on that. I uh, didn't necessarily choose the the exact path of going to Naval Academy. I ended up going to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. So I graduated from high school, went to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, and uh, the the big challenge there was was finding the direct pathway to apply, even apply to the SEAL teams, because from up and up until that point. No one has ever went directly from the Merchant Marine Academy and then gone right to to SEAL training before. So finding a pathway, and there's a certain amount of spots on how that works. There's Back then, there was about 40 spots, and most of them came from Naval Academy, and the rest would come from ROTC spots or, or OCS. And you know, trained quite a bit and met a lot of people and had some great help and great mentors along the way. And was lucky enough to get to get picked up and selected uh, my senior year for what they would call basic underwater demolition SEAL training. Awesome. So yeah, Merchant Marine. We've had we had a podcast about the Merchant Marines during World War II. It's one of those uh, organizations, like part of the military that a lot of people don't know a lot about. That's right. It's a it's kind of like the best kept secret out there for for federal academies. I think. I mean, you can at this point there's a pathway to go. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Air National Guard, or or stay in the Merchant Marine. But it's a unique school that you do four years of schooling and three years, and you have to do a year overseas. And you're it's divided up on what sport you played, on, on what year, how many you, know, you might be gone four months your sophomore year and eight months your junior year, and you're you're just out there on merchant vessels working and uh, getting collecting enough sea days and learning enough hands on training combined with your the curriculum at school to sit for your Coast Guard exam your senior year. But the school was founded during World War II. It was actually on the grounds of uh, Chrysler's old building. So you had a direct line of sight into New York City, which was which was interesting because I was there at the Merchant Marine Academy when 9-11 happened and we were able to see the um, you know everything kind of unfold in front of our eyes there. I graduated in uh, 2002. But unique, unique campus, unique area, and and definitely unique opportunities. But Merchant Marine Academy, you know, we, we've you know even during World War II, we lost 142 midshipmen during that time because they didn't. They were just pumping kids out and midshipmen out after a year and a half of training to get out, and which is now known as the uh, you know tin can sailors. Right. Uh, so you, I guess, were you the first midshipman? Merchant Marine midshipmen to become a Navy SEAL? They, that went directly from the academy uh, right to SEAL training and become a SEAL, yes. Awesome. And after uh, you know you completed BUDS, what team were you with on the SEALs? So I went to East Coast. I went right to um, SEAL Team 4, then it was over at 8. So I spent all my time on the uh, East Coast-based SEAL teams, which 
being from New Jersey, I was able to uh, be in the same time zone and and during between training trips and and deployments, I still had opportunity to see my family up north, see my my sisters, my sisters' kids, and and my brother, and watched him kind of grow up and and play sports and, and and things like that. All right, so you did seals. After you left active duty, you decided to go to Harvard to get your master's in what MPA was that master's in public what's that administration yeah master's yeah. of public administration so what, what, yeah. what was the what was going on there what was your plan with that well I'd say Harvard was a little bit of a Hail Mary for me I uh, put my application in I I looked at did a lot of different programs for one I was just transitioning after about 11 and a half years in the seal teams deploying and gone quite a bit. I was looking for basically to challenge myself in the, in the I guess in the civilian sector. I wanted to really put my hand and and try my hand in entrepreneurship, um, but a big thread for me was was service. I wanted to continue to serve in in ways outside the military when I wasn't wearing a uniform. The Harvard Kennedy School seemed like an incredible program. For one, it was it was one year program. At the time, I was uh, 30, 33, 34 years old, so I was like, hey, I just want to go there. There's a lot of seams that I need to fill. I mean, I have a lot, had a lot of experiences and a lot of leadership time, but a lot of seams that I thought that I, I needed to fill and maybe some time to just kind of reflect a bit. And grad school seemed like a great, great transition program. One topic that was in one subject that I kept on reading about was social entrepreneurship. So this is, you know, impact. You know, how can, how can you start organizations and companies that leave impact and leave, I guess, the world in a better place than you found it. And I thought that that was uh, really unique. I thought that based on a lot of the experiences that that I had and lucky enough to serve with some of the most amazing people, SEALs, men and women, support staff, and had a lot of great experiences along the way. I was like, I thought that was really fascinating to me. How can I continue to serve outside the military how can I continue to have an impact or start an organization that would help would help me would help me facilitate that? Uh, the Kennedy School education was was very elective driven, and I liked that aspect. So I said, "All right, well, I can take a class over at Harvard Business School in entrepreneurial finance. I can go to MIT and take a cross register in a class of uh, you know startup challenges." or stop by classes at the law school, or even just learn about statistics and, and policy and how to make impact through public in the public sector. And, and really that tied pretty heavily into to both organizations that I'd, I ended up founding and co-founding. Right. So let's talk about that. You graduate, got your MPA, and you found help found not just one, but two organizations. Let's talk about O2X Human Performance first. Tell us what is what is what it is and like who are your main clients. So O2X is a human performance education and training company. I mean, what we founded it as, I mean, our mission was always being a help people maximize human performance, how to reach peak and sustain peak performance. And the big thing is durability, sustainability, longevity. I mean, how can we continue and get people to go through a transformational experience to educate, provide the tools for them to to improve by 1% every day. And we started out, initially, we had a, a great vision of, you know, we had a lot of people out there, a lot of organizations that we would look at, like they try, they have a product and they try to build a brand around a product. And we wanted to provide an experience. 
And we started out with this uh, base to peak mountain race. And, you know, it sounds, um, you know, it's quite intense. And I think if all the participants uh, knew what it was before they started, they probably wouldn't have signed up for it. We had some, you know, pretty extreme athletes, uh, like top, you know, Nike runners and trail runners and off, off trail, off trail mountain racers that were there. But then we just had everyday athletes or people that were, were just coming out there because they wanted to be inspired. They wanted to get back to the outdoors. And we utilized that in the, the basis of the center of gravity of that event, Brett, was that was the, our base camp. And our base camp was education. Uh, it was fireside chats that we called it. Uh, we had human performance specialists and, and the mission was always to maximize per human performance. And uh, we started with that and uh, grew it in the Northeast and it expanded across uh, across North America. Uh, we had some race in Canada, uh, Pacific Northwest, Midwest. And we over that time, we really honed in and developed our curriculum, which is now what we outroll to our main market, which is tactical athletes. Tactical athletes for us is you know, people with physically, mentally, emotionally challenging jobs, ones that, you know, our nation's heroes that are out there on the front lines every single day that give us the opportunity for us to, to kind of be safe and, and live our lives. They're the first responders, they're uh, the police officers, they're firefighters, which we work with quite a few of them, EMS, Department of Corrections, it's our, our, it's our military. So we've worked with quite a few departments uh, across the country now. Now uh, we've started out with Boston Fire, expanded out, we've been working with about 20% of Montana. So we're slowly building and growing and delivering our education program that that primarily is tackling a lot of the occupational challenges that are plaguing these tactical athletes. And what are those um, occupational challenges? Like what unique fitness issues do they have that say like just a regular citizen doesn't have? So, you know, I'll go back to a little story of how we, we came into uh, the tactical space. For one, our background being in the military and special operations and, you know, is something that we were passionate about. We had a lot of, you know, first responders that came to our events. Um, they wanted more. We ended up having a meeting with, with Boston Fire. And uh, I, mean, I can remember every detail about that meeting. The other co-founder, we have two other co-founders with O2X. Uh, one was a both are, are former Navy SEALs. One I, I served with, Paul McCullough, and other one is Gabriel Gomez, who got out uh, right around nine, uh, 1996. So I remember walking into this meeting, and we walked in, and they said they were looking for an injury prevention program. Mainly, they were had over 100, sol- over 100 shoulder surgeries a year. And of course, for one, it wasn't sustainable. Two, it's costing the city an incredible amount of money. And, you know, people are just not feeling good. You know, in the meeting, we had the, you know, the union, which was kind of like our first exposure into not only the Massachusetts, the firefighting union as a whole, but obviously all, all these first responders have unions. So we had the, you know, the International Association of Firefighters or the, the Massachusetts State Firefighters Union, the local 718, which is, run, is about 1,500 members strong with Boston Fire there. And then we had health and safety division. And so the health and safety division of Boston Fire was was really just getting re-energized because there's a lot of these issues that they had to do something about. They could not turn their head. And it's interesting because you look at the fire service or, you know, really first responders as a whole. I mean, your Boston Fire was the first fire department in the country. It was the nation's first. 
and you're about mid 1600s, like 1650. So I think they got the first engine and the first paid firefighter, the first fire chief was like in 1670s at some point. So a ton of history and a ton of amazing things about the culture. For one, incredibly tough guys, like tough guys that that really step up to these challenges that they face every day. But there was also things about the traditions and, and culture that needed to change a bit. And it wasn't just about fitness. It's about general performance and what you needed to do and how do you needed to perform on the fire ground and with your task. Some of these issues they had were, and this is what we peeled the onion back in that meeting, was it wasn't just so- shoulder surgeries, which over 100 a year is, is quite a bit. It was the sleep apnea and the shift work. It was obesity or type 2 diabetes. It was the cardiac disease, which is rivaling basically number one killer of firefighters, occupational related killer of firefighters. And then there's cancer. So the cancer, every three weeks, a Boston firefighter is diagnosed with cancer. And cancer is prevalent and and I think the statistic is you're two and a half times more likely to get cancer as a firefighter than just than just anyone in the average population. And the reason is that for one, there's occupational related hazards all over the place. Everything is flame retardant materials and the carcinogens in these fires, whether it's a, a car fire, house fire, whether you can see it or we can see the smoke or not, it's in the air. So it's a kind of a caustic cocktail between okay, maybe fitness wasn't a priority. Training for performance isn't a priority. Uh, Maintaining your weight wasn't a priority for some. The sleep and the shift work made it really hard to recover and feel good. So during that meeting, and uh, truthfully, we didn't know which direction it was going to go because we were talking about tackling all this holistically because it's not too far off, minus maybe minus the cancer. It wasn't too far off of what we saw in the military. And what we wish we had. And that's the premise of where O2X came from. This is the program, the education, the holistic, the complete program, the curriculum that we wish we had. It's more or less, you know, teaching everybody how to fish versus the catch of the fish for them. So how do all these things interconnect and how do we take care of ourselves so we can finish our careers as strong as we started them? Gotcha. So firefighters, police officers, EMS, soldiers, like Let's talk about their physical, your strength and conditioning programs for these guys. Do you train them pretty much all the same or do you modify it based on their occupation? No, we, we definitely modify it. We modify it not only to the occupation, but also where they're at. For one, first responders, you have, I mean, you have some wildland firefighters that are 22, 23 years old, or, you know, some of those individuals that we, you know, we train all a lot of recruit classes in the academies and you have some military veterans coming out at 24, but then you have some that are 60 years old. So, and they're all different demands. They have different positions and roles. When you talk about law enforcement, you talk about maybe a SWAT team or ESU, maybe people that are doing a lot of search warrants that are getting, getting, kind of getting their hands on and, and kind of really uh, dealing with certain sort of non-permissive environments or hostile uh, suspects and things like that versus, say, firefighter in Boston is doing 30 calls a night versus a wildland firefighter that you know is spending multi-days without sleeping in the field and battling firefighters and pretty much fighting fires with garden tools for the most part. So we have to analyze how we train them is it's very our model is eat, sweat, and thrive. 
and under our sweat pillar is a, a big part of it's very personalized and it's personalized through like a needs analysis. So basically physiologically, what do you need for your job to perform? What are your specific job tasks? And I mean, I just came from a workshop outside of Chicago last, like really last couple of days. And we were going through this and we were talking, each individual was like, what, tell me, tell me about your job. You know, what, do, what are your specific needs that we, that you have, whether, and what is the specific movements? Is it uh, squatting? Is it benching down? Is it tight, confined spaces? uneven terrain, hot and very hot or extreme temperature environments. What a type of injuries do you have? What are pre-existing things that you've had before? And then also what's people's training age? Training age is like really the, the age that you've been training correctly, the duration of the age you've been training correctly for. So if you were uh, been trained and you were a competitive athlete and you know, you were in the weight room, you know, at 15 years old and really had an idea of knew what you were, you knew what you were doing and you're 30 years old, your training age would be 15 years, which is someone that has never been trained before, maybe wasn't, wasn't as athletic or maybe did not, weren't involved in sports and is kind of a, a late bloomer when it comes to that. And they've only really been training for a couple of years, believe it or not. So we have to look at the skill sets of everybody too, of what they're doing. So we believe in uh, three things under our sweat pillar, not only about, for one, specificity of training, like what is your job? Because performance is so job specific and and your training should be as well, right? I don't think anyone's going to argue that, you know, a strong man is, is very kind of fit in his own way. And so is an ultra marathoner. But if you, you stuck a strong man in the water and told him to swim, you might, it might not bode so well. Or if it took an ultra marathoner and say, hey, pick up that, pick up that Atlas stone over there, that might not help, right? So when we're talking about this, we're like we need to train for performance for, versus training for fitness. And if you train for performance and what your job task will, a byproduct is you will, you will get fit, but you will be prepared for your job. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. So like what kind of stuff you have? Like, so I imagine there's like, are you guys doing like kind of CrossFit type stuff, barbell training? What is that like a typical program might look like? So a typical program, it's all we call periodization, which I'm sure you, you've heard before. It's a, you know, kind of a methodology is like, what are we looking at? What energy systems, whether it's 
you know, aerobic, anaerobic, whether it's, you know, obviously analyzing your needs and demands and then setting up a, a, a structured program. It's not waking up and being like, I wonder what I should do today. It's very structured. It's, you know, we have programs that are uh, very, very basic for people that are three days a week. We have programs that are, are five days a week. We have more advanced programs. Some of the, it's not CrossFit style, I would say it is more of, you know, hitting the right energy systems at the right times, knowing that you have to be ready for your, I'd say, quote, it'd be the toughest day of your life. You know, when you get that call, you need to be prepared for, you have to have a certain amount of preparation. And if you're just a runner and you're just, you know, kind of more of an aerobic athlete, well, you may not be able to pull your buddy out of that fire. So we have to, when we talk to them about it, we're like, all right, we have, you know, 50, 60 different programs on our tactical athlete portal. We have this, this portal that houses all of our education and information. We give them access to that. And then we'll have them go through and basically say, all right, I need to develop more strength. So what's that going to look like? And to get to your question, it might be more barbell training. It might be more working on some explosive speed. It might be someone who is aerobically built or that needs to put a couple pounds of muscle on. It might be more focused on that. So we're very, I'd say very structured in our programming. However, I want people to go home and when they come through O2X to find it approachable for everybody. So we don't, we're not training the same way as a 60 year, for a 60-year-old firefighter who's been in service for 30 years versus a 25-year-old. On some ways, what I'm seeing in the, in the first responders is that it's, a, it's extremes on both sides. I see people that are working out and are, and are pretty much in the overtraining range. And then I see people that are not training at all. So I also don't want to implement something that's so structured that they're not going to stay with and they're not going to have fun with because I want to make sure that it's fun, it's exciting for them. And also, I want to meet them where they are and I want it to be approachable. So some of the first responders that we've had in our course, some of the tactical ads, it's been a long time, believe it or not, since they've trained. So we go through our methodology of uh, a prepare, sweat, recover. So we're preparing for movement, which kind of involves a lot of like, you know, front planks and side planks and work on, you know, basically firing your muscles before movement. We do it a lot of like those mini bands that we get. We, we were kind of partnered with perform better. So these little, these little mini bands you put around your ankles, your knees, and we can get your, your uh, posterior chain, like your glutes, your hamstrings firing so we can get those movements ready. Then we go into a dynamic warm up, and we're basically preparing them for actual movement, what their sweat is. And then we do some foam rolling and static stretching, which we call the recover section at the end. But there's some people that come through our course or some first responders say, like, I don't even know where to start with some of, some of my team that might be 80 plus pounds overweight. And we say, well, you might want to just start with the prepare and the recover. You might want to just help them getting active and feel approachable and kind of improving. We say this over and over again, is that improving by 1% every day, just get people moving again to start feeling better. So our model feel like it's, it is very structured. It is very science and evidence-based and, and fact, you know, fundamentally sound. But we want to make sure that if someone writes in and they run a run a 5K and they want to train with a 5K in their lo- in their hometown with their wife, well, there's some benefits of that of them working together and motivation that will help just get them started on a program or working towards a goal. It's a lot of goal setting, Brett. Right, right. I think how you train these guys or what I mean, because I think 
when I've talked to people who've wanted to start working out, just talking about regular civilians, one of the things like, well, the, the hurdles they have, like, I just don't have the time. It just doesn't fit in my schedule. But like, you're working with people whose schedule is like super erratic, right? And it's super already pretty strenuous, yet they're, they're finding time to do that. So like, what allows them to do that? Like, how do you get these guys to train, even though their schedule might be wonky or they just got back and had like a terrible shift. It was super hard but they still got to train. So what do you do to help them do that? Yeah. Well, for one, I bring up the goal setting because I think that setting some very tight goals and also finding motivation, anytime you can align someone's like someone's values behind like what their goal is. And for a lot of the people that I, you know, I think that I've listened to your show, they just want to, they want to feel better. Right. And we're not saying that you have to live this, this rigorous life and you have to start like five days a week training and getting up at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. Like you don't necessarily need to do that. You just need to be able to set a goal. If your goal in, in six months is to start feeling better and to start getting in better shape or losing some pounds, like getting very specific on the goals and setting a structured program and easing, easing into things. So someone who hasn't even touched it, they say, for one, I, I don't have time to work out. Well, some of the first responders we have, they only get about 15 minutes between calls and they'll find an opportunity to work out. And then there, and we hear another thing, it's like, I don't have equipment. Well, there's a lot of places that we served in in the military that didn't have equipment. And the one thing you have always is you have gravity, right? And you got your body weight. So there's an incredible amount of things that we that you can do with just your body weight and, and really just using uh, body weight conditioning exercises and, and things that you can tackle. And if you start make set goals, start building a routine, and I'm, you know, couldn't preach building a strong and, and a realistic routine for yourself, then it starts developing better habits. But I would say that for the listeners, if starting starting with a 1% change, if you can just move a little bit more every day, if you can set like, hey, I'm going to take 10 minutes to foam roll in the morning, or I'm going to take 10 minutes to do a body weight workout at some point where I know I can control the day. And I think that's very, very important. I know that's for me is being able to put my workouts and put my training sessions in a time of the day that I can control. Because essentially once 6.30 hits, I mean, the emails or phone calls are coming in and we're just going and it doesn't, and doesn't necessarily stop. So I know I, I know I really, really value and like cherish my mornings. That's the, my time for, you know, for my own professional development. And I can tell you that if you don't take care of yourself, everything else, your business, your family, you know, how you perform, it seems like all that other stuff starts coming apart. So I, you got to set yourself as a priority. You have to. Right. So yeah, I think a good insight there is like, don't expect like perfection all the time. Like do what you can to control the situation with your workout. But sometimes you just, you can only do what you can do and but that's okay. Yeah. Same thing with the, the nutrition component is the same. We see a lot of people just, they're trying to do too much too quick. And if it's not a sustainable plan that you can do for the rest of your life, it, I mean, it's hard to get, it's hard to achieve a lot of your goals. If you, I think the adage is you can't outwork a bad fork. So you can work really hard and train really hard, but if your nutrition is lacking, it, it's really challenging. So I think staying, staying ahead of that, but not feeling guilty when you miss a workout. I mean, that's going to happen. Life happens, right? 
my my sister's got you know three kids and it always sounds like every time i call it sounds like you know world war three in the background and and i know that she's got a lot she's got a lot going on but finding those moments for for themselves and finding some time to take a moment to to structure a a program and and not feeling guilty when when life happens and say hey this week said 80 20 you know if you could do 80% of the time if you can do what's right that's great 20% of the time like don't feel don't feel guilty having that dessert at dinner right don't eat half of it just like just commit to and eat the whole thing <laughs> just get back after it uh the next morning right well so an, an important part of physical fitness a lot of people focus on the training and the nutrition part but like where the growth happen is is during recovery right when you're not training but i imagine recovery for these guys, for these tactical athletes, it's hard because, as you said, they're on sh- they're doing shift work, so there might be, you know, sleep is an important part of recovery. But these guys might be awake when they should be asleep. So, how do you manage recovery for these guys? Yeah, I mean, for one, recovery time is completely unpredictable because you don't know when you're going to get the next call. You're operating in extreme, unpredictable environments and terrain. There's shift work, you know, and there are the variety of different shift schedules. Some are some are better than others, and a lot of high pressure situations. And giving them tools to recover and relax, which gets a lot into our thrive pillar, which is like the mental performance, stress mitigation, is very very critical in that recovery process. You know, in our programs, we teach about breathing. We teach about mindfulness and yoga. We teach about the value of of sleep and sleep hygiene and building really good sleep habits, knowing how to set up your environment to sleep where it's a place of, you know, it is a place of recovery, right? And and also mindset. You have to make it a priority. All these things are prioritizing the right way. And if you make priority like sleep a priority and make that a priority as, Hey, this is part of my job preparation. And I don't care if it's like in the boardroom or out in the field or in the military. I mean, there's an element of like, you have to recover there. Now there's times where these guys are, are working a 24 hour shift and doing 33 calls at 33 calls a night. They're, they're busy. They don't have time, but to be able to give them the tools to take care of where a lot, Brett, it gets into is, is what's, what's between the ears, right? So taking care of everything, taking care of your mind and provide those tools so when they are off shift and when the dust settles after the helicopters kind of take off and, and, and you're there, you have that time to relax. You have that time and you have those tools in your toolbox at your disposal. And I don't expect people to you know, they come through our program, they come through our workshops, they see our online informa- online courses and to be subject matter experts. And I don't want to give them we have a problem with the, you know, having a complete holistic program is if there's a lot of information. So how to make it very, very simple. And so we give them access to things like that tactical athlete portal, which is, has those breathing exercises on, and it has the yoga nidra, um, the I rest, the sleep, the meditation. And so we can start building those healthy habits there and also training a new skill set because the conditioning and nutrition, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, the science evidence, things change a bit, but maybe not as, not as uh, rapid as we all, as we all think what's fundamentally sound. But, you know, I can tell you that every, workshop every time that we go out and train tactical athletes we do work even with the chicago blackhawks professional sports some federal agencies and we always ask what percentage of your job 
is mental versus physical. I will tell you 100% of the time in every single job, and even within corporation, they say their job is more mental than physical. And, and then we're like, well, why don't we train that? If your job is, you know, people say various different percentages, but they all say it's more than less. They would say, well, why don't we train what's between the ears then? If that if that's a, pro- a higher focus or that's a higher probability, we're always going towards the nutrition and the conditioning, but can't underestimate the value of the rest, the recovery, dealing with stress management, which which is a huge thing for for these types of high stress occupations. It's uh, it's kind of tough to manage the the day to day. Their their jobs are not easy. Right. I imagine that's how you sell it to them. Because I, I can see a lot of these, you know, you said firefighters, these guys are tough guys. Police officers saying like, you tell them like, hey, you need to meditate. And they probably have these associations of meditation of like sitting in yoga pants or something. But that's I think right. Some, like, your, if your job's mental, like train the mental. Yeah. There's an element of grit and toughness that, that needs to be a part of it. You know, I, I'd say from the mental performance side, like when you bring up uh, some of the top athletes or I'd say it's become more and more acceptable now because you're hearing a lot more about it, whether it's in athletics or in the special operations community, but it's all, it's all in the messaging and it's all how the curriculum is outrolled, you know, to walk into a firehouse, um, to walk into a police station or a team room or a locker room and say, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to get down here and start meditating and we're going to really practice breathing. That would not, that would not work well, you know, to be able to kind of get them to trust and to trust and buy into the program and most importantly, see the results. And I think when people, people see these results and these impact, it could be, uh, you know, feeling better from a mental health standpoint, managing stress, some of the law enforcement officers that are out there, I mean, they're, they're by themselves, they're operating by themselves. And so there probably couldn't be a more stressful time in the, in, you know, than, than now to be a law enforcement officer. And there's a lot of pressures and a lot of stress. There's a lot of visibility. There's a lot of oversight that's happening. And when you come from a domestic dispute and then you're going into your high-speed chase and you're also um, detaining somebody and then you're going to an overdose and then you're standing in the middle of the traffic directing traffic for in the morning as everyone's going to work like when i pass those law enforcement officers the police officers out on the field traffic like i can't imagine what's good the ones that we work with it's like the the person that's directing traffic there you know they just they just could have had one hell of a night and here you are passing them on your way to work and it, it's to provide them the tools in order to kind of self-regulate, to be able to, hey, when I'm in my car and I got a minute or I got time to kind of just, you know, catch my breath and, and to be able to kind of recenter and get back into the zone. Um, and it's the same thing that we talk about with our athletes. Hey, like, how do you know when you're in a, when you're in a bad spot and you're, you know, you're, you're at a level of a five and you want you to be playing at a seven? Like, how do you change that? So that's O2X performance. You, you guys are helping, like, so that's one way you're making an impact is with the first responders, getting them not only in shape physically, but also mentally. Let's talk about the other organization you founded, uh, One Summit. What's, what's that? Uh, One Summit is a nonprofit that builds resilience in children battling cancer. We do this through a couple of different pillars, but experiential learning, uh, we take them, take them rock climbing. We do it through storytelling. We have an opportunity for them to kind of tell their stories and then also education into the community. So in community engagement. 
But the, what makes it unique too is that you also hook these kids up with a Navy SEAL mentor, right? Yeah, that's correct. So actually, right around the it was right around the same time that I put together O2X uh, One Summit was was really my first idea coming out of the military. Unfortunately, I, I lost my mother to cancer on my first deployment. I was deployed and kind of got the word that my mom passed away. She was battling breast cancer for for about uh, a year and a half. She fought it you know, really hard, inspired a lot of people along the way. And, you know, that was the first time I've ever had an exposure to cancer. That was the the closest I've ever been to it before. I didn't know much about it at the time. And, and I wanted to do, find a way to, to help and learn more and get closer to the thing that really took, you know, took someone who I cared about and loved, you know, so much. So I started volunteering at a, at a variety of different cancer organizations and, you know, over time was surprised on how many children get cancer and it seemed like an incredibly unfair fight to me you know here you know things that happen to us later in life i mean yeah we can reflect on a lot of experiences we've had and and we can kind of dig dig deep with inside and kind of reflect on those experiences to kind of inspire us to rise to the occasion and fight in battle but to me when these kids were getting cancer at a number of different ages, I mean, it, it's completely an, an unbiased disease, right? It was, it was just an unfair fight. It was like pulling their childhood from them when they should be in school, when they should be out on the playgrounds and playing sports and having fun. You know, they're spending their time in, you know, their their other locker room, which is is really the pediatric oncology, you know, center and going through chemotherapy and and going through uh, radiation and and hearing all these prognoses, not only but if they make it through, but all the possible secondary impacts that could have that not a lot of people don't talk about along the way. I was at during that time when I was volunteering. I was obviously serving in the in the SEAL teams, and you know I happened to be surrounded by just an incredible bunch of human beings that were extremely inspirational. They were they were tougher than hell, and I tell you, they um, I saw an opportunity to merge like kind of two of my passions and two of my worlds together. All I wanted to do is just, I thought that it was, a, it was a great opportunity to connect this group that was very resilient, but I thought also, you know, needed a, a, another connection outside the military. And then I saw this group of kids that were like battling and they were both warriors in their own sense, but merging these two warriors together made, you know, kind of created something great. At first, I reached out to a lot of different hospitals, well, mainly because I was moving up to Boston, Massachusetts. There's an incredible amount of hospitals. I reached out to a number of hospitals. This is no nonprofit, no program, just that really an idea. I said, you know, I'd love to take partner these kids up with Navy SEALs, give them a mentor, you know, basically a, a mentor that can kind of help navigate them through this in life and be there for them provide those skills, but I want to do it. And I want to give them some skills through, through rock climbing. And for me, rock climbing taught a lot, taught us a lot about, a lot about life. There there's overcoming fears of starting a new challenge for them. Like it could be this, most of them it's rock climbing for the first time, just like when you're starting to bet your battle against cancer or whatever your new challenge is in life, you have this monumental hurdle and there's an immense amount of fear of just kind of taking that first step. 
And then we talk about setting goals and not getting overwhelmed about this like huge mountain or this huge rock that you need to you need to climb. It's it's taking one hand and one foothold at a time, or you know the direction you direction you think you're going to take in life. You know the one that you, the route that you think you're going to take and the route that you actually take is usually two different things. And that's a hundred percent just like in life. It's like the path, the pathway that we think that we're going to go on and we end up taking are, are almost always different. And the biggest part then is, is trust. And when we bring these kids out climbing, for one, they're meeting a complete stranger for the first time. We do things like workbooks and we, you know, we get, there's little surveys and questionnaires that we go to kind of educate on both sides. So it's not a, a complete cold start, but for the most part, they're coming in and they're meeting a complete stranger. And that complete stranger is in within 15, 20 minutes is showing you your life-saving gear, your harness and your ropes and how this whole process will, will work. And there's an immense amount of trust that happens. And I, and I think that's indicative of, you know, for one, when you're, when you're going through battling cancer, there's immense amount of trust that you have to have, not like, like in your parents and the healthcare workers and the, and the aides that are there. And, uh, you know, I've been lucky with, with one summit, you know, I have a tremendous amount of people that have, have got behind it and the impact has truthfully, it's, I, I knew something special was going to come out of it, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away every day about the stories that we hear. Well, and, and I'm sure there's tons of them, but I mean, is there, is there are a few that stand out to you of how not only have the lives of these kids been changed, but also the seals too. Yeah, there's. One in particular that stands out, this one kid that was, or one little warrior there that was, uh, you know, battling cancer for quite a bit of time. And, you know, there's highs and lows. It goes into remission. It comes back and, you know, it just continued to battle over and over again. And um, he was going into taking the ride like he normally did with his father into, you know, getting another brain scan. He had brain cancer. And he was coming in there and, and he turned to his dad in the car ride and he said, you know, dad, <clears throat> you know, I, I hope, I hope this tumor grows. And basically, you know, what his dad described to us was like, you know, he was saying, you know, I, I like, I, I'm fought this fought, I fought this fight like long enough, like I'm tired. So you can only imagine what that would be to hear that as a father. You could not even imagine, Right. So he goes in and he comes across this this flyer there for one summit, and he he um, comes back and he ends up reaching out to us and there's an application process and he he comes through and by the way we didn't even know this this part of this story beforehand he comes through our program and just I guess it gave him a second wind it you know, put him, made him a kid again, got him back up on the wall. He, he, he left there thinking he had superpowers. Right. And so sometimes it's all about, you know, there's certain things that you just obviously with the treatment and cancer and the, how aggressive it is and how it attacks some people, there's certain things you just can't, you just can't do anything about. Right. But sometimes it's survival and, and, and it's sometimes it's survival between the mind and the body and that connection that's there. So that fire that was lit, you know, in that child, in that little warrior after that, he ended up just changing his mindset and battling. And uh, about six, uh, it was about eight or 10 months later, his dad reached out with that story and said, 
you know, I can tell you before one summit, he was, he was ready to throw the towel in and he told the story. He said, but after that event and that experience and his work with a mentor, he's like, he, uh, he's like, but he's like, and by the way, I just want to let you know his, his tumor just shrunk two millimeters. That's awesome. And uh, I'm sure these the seals that are involved, I mean, that transforms their life too, to see these kids battle. Absolutely. Even more so, you know, really, you know, the guys are, the guys are, are humbled. I think they're in awe. I think the kids come in and they think they're, we're going to be, they're going to be in awe of us. And, and that's like the, that's their mindset. They're like, oh, I'm meeting a, I'm meeting a superhero today. But I can tell you, uh, we learn way more from them. There's way more impact and inspiration that comes. And they teach us about what, what resilience and what true toughness really is. Is there a way for people who are listening to the show to get involved in the program, help support this? Because I'm sure there's people who would like to do that. Yeah, sure. It's uh, onesummit.org. So it's O-N-E-S-U-M-M-I-T.org. Yeah, and you can you can get involved with one summit on org, and then O2X is uh, just O2X.com. Well, Adam, thanks for coming on. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, thanks for having us on. And um, I do want to let everybody know if if anybody that that listens to the podcast, you know, they want to access that tactical athlete portal that has the strength and conditioning programs, the nutrition, hundreds of recipes, the mental performance, and it also has like kind of a concierge human performance reach back site and referral there. Um, we're giving everybody a one, one free month membership. If they put in a O M obviously, and so that's alpha Oscar Mike there into the promo code, you get one free month. So happy to give all your, all your guests that. Well, thank you very much. We'll be sure to include that in our show notes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. My guest today was Adam LaRue. He is the founder of O2X, a human performance organization dedicated to training tactical athletes. You can find more information about that at O2X.com. Also check out his nonprofit, One Summit, that teams up Navy SEALs with kids with cancer, take some rock climbing. Go to onesummit.org to find out about that and find out ways you can get involved with that organization as well. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash O2X, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've got something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.